The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd, I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, our show today is about interpersonal conflict, and we have a wonderful guest with us coming all the way from the beautiful state of Montana, which I have not been there yet, but I hope to go there soon. And our guest is William Wilmot, and he co-authored with Joyce Hawker this wonderful book called Interpersonal Conflict. And I actually have this gorgeous book in front of me, and it's the eighth edition. So he has been doing this for a long, long time. Bill specializes in conflict and mediation, especially in the workplace, and is an advanced practitioner, and he is with the Association for Conflict Resolution. And he has intervened in over 400 disputes and helped diverse organizations over the past 25 years with a variety of issues. His major conflict publications, where he co-authored this wonderful book I have in front of me, Interpersonal Conflict, and Artful Mediation. This interpersonal conflict book has made a major impact on understanding how conflict originates and what practical steps we can take. Bill has an active local and international practice, having worked with clients all the way from Italy, Finland, Switzerland, South Africa, Spain, Japan, Belgium, Sweden, Taiwan, England, Singapore, New Zealand, Denmark, and the United States. Wow. Bill was one of the key architects of the five disciplines of innovation workshops, where he specializes in team issues, and he is co-author with Kurt Carlson, CEO of SRI International, of Innovation, the Five Disciplines for Creating What Customers Want. Thank you, Bill, so much for joining us from your beautiful state. Well, thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you. So how is it that you wrote your first edition of Interpersonal Conflict? Well, uh, Joyce Hawker and I were talking once at a convention and said, well, we're communication professors, but nobody's studying conflict. They're all talking about the upside. So we started working on that project years ago, and that's what led us to this. And for me, doing the academic study uh, and trying to understand it and make sense out of it, then I was sitting in my office one day, 
And I thought, wouldn't it be something if I actually went into a real conflict instead of sitting back in my office reading about it? And the phone rang, and it was somebody saying, can you come and help us? So that started an entirely different journey for me. It was really quite propitious. Yeah, that's talk about synchronicity, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's how life works. So how is it even that you got interested in the study of and practice of conflict management? How, How did that even start? Well, well, the study itself was I've always wanted to try to figure things out because I came from a family that didn't see conflict, do conflict, or hear conflict. Mm. And when somebody would say that word, I would freeze emotionally. And I thought, there's got to be something better as a response than that. And so it really comes all the way from my family of origin where mom might be slamming the pots in the kitchen, but, of course, there's no conflict going on. <laughs> right. The, yeah. The, yeah the, you do that one. <laughs> yeah, right. People say, I'm not angry. You know. <laughs> right. So you have, you write that people have conflicts, the, the TRIP acronym. Why don't you explain what you mean by that? Well, the TRIP acronym is a way to try to help people understand what are the four common things that people struggle over. So the T stands for the topic or the content. Uh, You're fighting over money, you're fighting over space, land, who gets the new computer. Those are the objective and observable things, you know, uh, that people think that conflict's about. The R is relationship, and this is what fuels most conflicts, which is if I feel, if I'm working with you, and I feel like you don't respect me, I will pick a fight over some topic. Uh, You know, work time, uh, who does call if we're physicians, uh, amount of pay on a client if we're business people. And so the the R, the relationships, that's a T in the R. The I is identity, and that's my image of who I am. And what fuels all conflicts are those two middle ones, the R and the I. So how I feel people are reacting to me and how that fits with how I see myself. So if I'm a college professor and I stand up and a student says, well, that's really stupid, and my identity is that I'm smart, we'll have a conflict. Yeah. And then the last one is P, which is procedure or process. And people will typically only fight over procedure when they feel like they're going to lose on the other ones. Yeah. So, you know, there's an election. Who calls for a recount? The one who wins by two votes or the one who loses? It's always the one who loses by two votes because they can't take that hit to their identity. Well, must be a mistake. I should have won this election. So the basis of the trip is that all conflicts are fueled and have in common the relationship and the identity. They get they bump out and activate through the procedure and through the topic, though. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you teach this, you teach conflict resolution at the college level, too? Well, I did for, as I like to say, more than two years <laughs> at the University of Montana. But I've retired early from the university. I'm a professor emeritus. And so I teach this in some workshops now uh, and also have a very active mediation practice in addition. And as mediators, don't we have to teach our clients? I mean, that's that's. I was in a nine-hour mediation yesterday. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, those are one of the. I'm sure you've done those marathons where everybody, you know, they they come in and out if you're doing caucusing, and then you're eating a, a, some nuts in between. Yeah, <laughs> that's well, that's well, when. Mari, tying back to this earlier idea, one of the things that I insist on when I do a mediation is, I never go into the conflict unless I've interviewed them separately. Yeah. And that I always put the parties together. Right. Because I find that I can't, as an intermediary, resolve those relationship and identity issues. But what I do is get them to articulate them, you know. Right. You interrupting the meeting and blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay, well, I'll quit doing that. And we try to solve the content issue. Right, right. And and I like, there are times that I can keep people together the entire time. And um, 
there are times, and this was a, a workplace dispute, so you could relate to that, but sometimes you, when people are with their attorneys and things are so hot, you have to go back and forth and reframe it. So if they say one thing, you have to reframe it to be very, very gentle that they, you know, something that they're saying that was not so gentle so that you can kind of deflect it and then you bring them all back together. At least that's, that. Absolutely. that was, that's, you know, something that works for me because you have people that are very hurt and very angry and feel that the other person, like you said, did not respect them, treated them terribly. And so you have to kind of try and build back that relationship, even if they're unable to do it at the time to kind of reframe how they say things so that it, it uh, does help to enhance the relationship so that they can get to settlement or solutions. Exactly. I totally agree with you. And what I do in the individual work is I teach them reframing. So when they bring out the issues, they don't say, you treated me terribly. They say, what I want is you to treat me X, Y, and Z. Yes. Don't uh, tell me and, what you did, Mark. when you Mark. do a good yeah. reframe, it really works. Like some of you say, well, you ran off and got an attorney. That shows you're trying to hammer me. Yeah. And the reframe is, gee, he must feel powerless if he has to get somebody else to fight for him. Right. And it right. sort of stops him in the tracks and helps him come back. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about personalities. Um, what role or is there a role for, is it personality dysfunctions that, that cause conflict that you see? Or what, what is it really? What, what does personality dysfunction have to do with it or does it have anything to do with it? Uh, well, it's being human that causes conflict. <laughs> One of the big mistakes we make in all the Western world is developing all these thousands of labels for the other person. He's this, she's that, that's why we can't do that. He's crazy, you know, she's manic-depressive, he's paranoid, blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't help people solve the issue. It keeps the person who's using the label stuck. And so what I, I actually teach a whole thing on how to move past personality labels, because I find it just keeps the party stuck. But that's how everybody in the Western culture analyzes what's going on. Of course, they don't say that about themselves. They say it about the other party. And both parties are doing that. You know, he's just power hungry. Well, you get inside that. Well, he's acting in a powerful way, and it's because his needs aren't getting met. So decomposing that, reframing that helps people get to the nub of what's going on because there are really only two things, behavior and how you perceive that behavior on both sides. Right. And so if you can work with those two, you can help people get to a better place and resolve it and make a negotiated agreement. Right. What do you think is the most difficult thing for people who are involved in a conflict, let's say, with a coworker? Because everybody who's listening to this works or will work, you know, even if they're students on the campus or if they're driving by and they own a business, they still have to work with people. And, yes. and I mean, you spend most of your waking day with people that you work with. Right. So, so that makes that in itself makes it difficult. But what, what do you think is the most difficult thing? Well, there are a couple of things. One is most people in a conflict, feel powerless. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to say it. Uh, they don't know how to engage the other party in a productive way. And the second thing as a direct result of that or along with that is almost always in all conflicts, there's a supreme amount of avoidance and not dealing with it. And so it builds. I come to work, somebody does something I don't like. It happens again. It happens again. And I haven't talked to the other person. I've made my mind up already. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing he will do to, 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 you know, to meet my needs. And it, it's really interesting working around the world. 
you have avoidance every place you go. The difference is people like the Japanese avoid because they don't want to hurt the other person's face or have the other person feel bad. But in America, we avoid because we don't want to feel bad. Right. And so the underlying dynamics different. The behavior is the same on the surface. Right. And, and you know, people who have very close relationships will just put things under the rug, and then the rug gets so bumpy that they all fall over it. Exactly. And, you know, the old phrase from years ago called it dump trucking. You, you know, garbage sacking. You throw it in there, and then you bring it to this big sack, go, whoop, and you say, I've been mad for X number of years. I actually worked with uh, three physicians one time. They were sitting on an issue for 13 years. <sighs> And it was so simple, I can't tell you what it was. It was so simple, it was unbelievable. And 13 years, the whole practice was ready to fracture. Isn't and that it was amazing? hard to unpack, but once you got this, like, oh, oh, well, that was pretty easy. And, and that's what's so unfortunate, that something will bother someone and they'll let it fester, or it'll come out insidiously in anger, instead yeah. of being able to just say what I call the art of gentle confrontation, yeah. where you say, gee, I'm having a problem with this, or I'm really uncomfortable with this. Sometimes, you know, I'm sure you do this as well, as we want to teach people to speak from what their own issue is, instead of a you a blaming issue, just say, you know, I'm really uncomfortable when you say things like this in front of other people. What can we do differently? Because it really hurts me. Exactly. Yeah. And just to be able to say to the person, you know, I really need you to respond to my emails because when you don't respond, I feel like you don't value me. Right. Boom. That's a very good message. Yes. And they go, oh, I didn't know that bothered you. I have trouble with my computer. Oh, Okay. Yeah. And and just sometimes even asking the question, gee, I have I didn't get any emails from you and it's really hard for me to deal with some situation without having those emails and then then the person can say, "Well, gee, I wrote them to you." and just say, "Oh, are they lost in cyberspace?" Or, you know, I mean, giving them a chance to even bring it up, but some people are so afraid to bring it up. What about this fight or flight type stuff? What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a very natural response. Most people flight Mm-hmm. The image of of us as people in the U.S. is that we're, you know, aggressive and we take people on. That's simply not true. The biggest avoiders I've worked with are attorneys. Oh, that's interesting. They will go fight tooth and nail in a court, but when they're working with their partner, they can't bring an issue up. So they avoid at the workplace. They fight in the courtroom. It's a well, fascinating disjuncture. And And they fight, and I've done a lot of divorces for attorneys that were married to each other. Yes. And, you know, it's because their training, and, and I'm an attorney, so I had to unlearn all this in the past 26 right. years. But, um, but really, our training is to look at arguments, not to look at solutions. Exactly. And, and that's the, the hard part of it. And you're, you're looking, the, the downside of being an attorney is you're trained to only look at that T of the T-R-I-P, only look at the topic. So, like, I did a dispute between two guys that had a business. They were fighting over $30,000. That wasn't what it was about. It was about not including the guy and making the decision in a branch office they set up. That was driving the whole dispute. Yes. And they came in trying to negotiate the 30000 Well, if we didn't negotiate, you know, $15,250, they still wouldn't have been satisfied because that wasn't what was driving that dispute. So you've got to get underneath the surface. But the training of attorneys, which has its place, leads people astray. And attorneys are not trained to deal with the human, emotional, connective relationship part. And so they will, quote, solve it. But we'll talk to somebody that won a, a court case. They're still not satisfied because the real drivers haven't been addressed. Right. They- and that's the winner. 
Yeah. And, and and the problem is this, is that people come into your office, if you're an attorney, and they say, you know, he did this and he did that. And they look at the blame and then they look at what is what is the legal issue here. And then they have to prove that legal issue instead of saying, well, what what is driving this? What yes. is what are the interests below this? What are your needs that weren't met in this? But again, they they look, OK, all right, we're going to go after this. And, and I think the, the good news is, is that law schools are starting to teach dispute resolution and you know, attorneys can be good problem solvers. They're, they're, they're good when they finally get to settlement. It's just that they don't think in terms of problem solving from the very beginning. Exactly, exactly. And it, it does have its place. I mean, there are conflicts that the only place you can resolve those are with a rule of law. But most of the personal conflicts in the workplace and personal relationships and neighbors and, you know, all of those kinds of things need to be done a different, different approach. Exactly. So how does the role of personal growth, you know, help or or hinder or what does it do to um, a relationship when you've got one person involved in personal growth and then the other one isn't? Well, it might or might not help. Usually it does because the one doing personal growth can take more responsibility for their side. That doesn't mean they'll be weak. People make a big mistake thinking that if you've gone to therapy or counseling or retreats and you really understand what your drivers are, that that makes you susceptible to being manipulated by the other party. It's exactly the opposite. You know, I say, well, I have a high need for inclusion, but I'm not going to let that have me give in on this topic issue because it's a big need and I understand that. So let's talk about that. Yes. And isn't a lot of this all about boundaries to learning to respect other people's boundaries and to know your own boundaries and respect your own? I mean, I, I, I somehow the more I do this, the more I realize that people aren't respectful of each other's boundaries. And, and a lot of that turns out to be a conflict. Yes. And, and so if you don't have those boundaries, and I find a lot of, or probably more people have trouble with their own boundaries than they do the other person's boundaries. Exactly. They will let the other person impinge on them and, you know, interrupt them in meetings and not say, John, wait a minute, it doesn't do, I can't do my best work if you're interrupting me. They will never say that, and so it tends to spiral over time and get worse and worse. Exactly. So when, when we talk about the workplace, which everybody is involved in, so this is a really good example. Um, if you're a manager, how can you predict who's going to create conflict in the workplace, and, and what do you do about it? It's so simple, it's unbelievable. All you have to do is do what I call a coalition diagram of who's in and who's out. Who are you spending the least time with? Who's not speaking up? Whose office is removed from everybody else? And draw a diagram of where people are located spatially with one another. You can totally predict who's going to pick the fight. <laughs> so, so the ones that are out are going to be the ones that pick the fight because they feel that they're left out? Exactly. Uh-huh. And they'll say, I don't want to be part of this group. And the truth is exactly the opposite. I was working with a faculty of nine people just two weeks ago, and the two people that were causing the trouble were the two people who were on, the only two whose offices were not with everybody else. Mm. You could totally predict that ahead of time without knowing personality or background or gender or any of that stuff. Just look at the patterns of behavior and ask yourself, who am I not going to lunch with? Who am I not talking to? Who do I get upset with? And that's the person who's going to act out because they aren't getting their needs met. So, so what about that in terms of you've got this whole kind of uh, overview of, of how location and where your 
I mean, I even see that in my mediations. I, I love to do a mediation with a round table rather than a square table for yes. just that reason. But so what do you do? Do you take people who are more gregarious, more collaborative and put them out there because you know that they're going to come in? Or what What are your suggestions for well, that? Well, it depends whether you're talking about office arrangement or who speaks up. You have to do the simple things first, which is make sure everybody's involved. Talk to the most uh, distant people first. Don't go talk to the high-power people. Say, oh, yeah, I'll go talk to Joan. Yeah, nobody likes Joan. Talk to Joan first so that you, as an intervener, don't get sucked into those system dynamics because it's very subtle and very strong. The system dynamics are stronger than the individuals. So that's one of the things you could do. The other thing to do is, if you are a manager or supervisor, to get other people to help you to include folks who say they don't want to be included. Mm-hmm. And actively go out and make agreements for, okay, I'll take uh, Sally to lunch on Tuesday and see how things are going. And as you as a manager, make absolutely sure that you're not going to lunch every day with the same person. Because there will be a conflict that will come up within a few weeks or a few months. I don't care who those people are. Because the other people will feel something's going on, they're talking about me, they, you know, they're going to fire me, blah, blah, blah. So we are speaking this afternoon, this morning, I don't even know what day it is. Uh, We're speaking this morning with uh, William Wilmot, who is the author of Interpersonal Conflict. He is a co-author with Joyce Hawker, and he does a lot of mediation himself. And so let me ask you something, Bill, from your own experience, what are some examples of conflicts that were totally resolved? Why don't you give us some of those and then some of those that maybe weren't resolved and why? The general rule here is if individuals can see that they can start to get their needs met, and as a mediator you do follow-up work to help keep them on board, you can resolve those things. So you could have a pretty high success rate, but for me that necessitates individual interviews, mediation session or sessions, and then follow-up work. So I don't do the work unless I do all three of those. So uh, probably the most dramatic example and also Harking back to what you were saying, Mari, about taking personal responsibility. If the person learns something in the conflict, that's really good. You don't have to to get it resolved. They could still be just as stupid and blocked as when they started, but they've got to feel like their needs are being met. Then they'll put it to rest or at least minimize it. So probably the most dramatic example was I actually did a mediation between a monk and a nun. And wow, we went through sessions, and I went back and saw them again and again. And these two people ended up, who couldn't stand to be in the same room with each other, they ended up saying that they were heart friends for life. And that doesn't happen very often, but I'll tell you when it does, there are tears all the way around. It was, I was blown out by this experience. Mm. And then ones that don't work are ones where the parties can't move. I had one recently that we had looked like we resolved it, and I went away saying, yeah, we made agreements, but it was a person who felt powerful and felt like it happened to be a she in this case, doesn't matter if it's she or he, like I have nothing to gain and I'm not going to do it. Well, I can predict what's going to happen to that work group a year down the road. It got put to rest now, but to, to my mind it wasn't really resolved because this one individual was arguing with me and saying, oh, blah, blah, no, I won't do this, no, I won't do that. Uh, she, she just simply wasn't available to move on anything. Oh, dear. And I couldn't reach her. I, it blew my mind. Huh. Yeah, it's well, someone like that, I guess they have to learn the hard way. Right, and she was connected to the most powerful person and knew that she was not going to be sorted out. It's like, I don't need to change anything. I'm the boss. 
Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, when they see the fallout, when they when they see people leaving, or they see people disloyal to them, or they see their best people leaving to go to another company, that's when they start to realize, oh, this isn't working. Either that, or they lose their company. That's right. Or somebody comes in and said, all of your employees have left. You're gone now. Exactly. And they'll get the same kind of treatment that they gave. Yeah. And, and that's it, really a big shock to folks when that happens. And it's kind of really a sad thing for them because they they have so many missed opportunities to become better CEOs. Right, right. Yeah. yeah to me, Maury, it's really interesting. It, conflict is so complex, and yet it's so simple. It, if, you can, if a person can tune into what their needs to be, you know, reinforced for their identity are, and and figure out how to work with that relationship component. It's real simple. People want to be included, want to have an impact, and and you know, make a positive you know, uh, impact on the world and the workplace. It's real simple. But we get all twisted up in all these things, and people lose sight of that. Yes, and they I just think, want to be valued. I mean, that's yeah. all it is. <laughs> and they want to be heard. You know, I would say yesterday in that nine hour mediation, <clears throat> I I would say I. Uh, oh, between me and the disputants, I would say that I listened 90% and talked 10%. I would say that's perfectly appropriate. Yeah, because I needed to hear what they had to say, and they needed to be heard. Yes. And they needed to feel that their their concerns were respected. And then, you know, people can resolve their own issues. So, so then all I have to do is ask some good open-ended questions like, what do you think it would take for you to feel comfortable Exactly. How could you move forward? How and do you they, think? And they can solve it. That's yeah, right. and, and that's what always amazes me. If I if I just keep my mouth shut, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which I've had to learn to do, which is hard as an attorney. But if it's I can just, everybody. <laughs> if I can learn to keep my mouth shut and ask a good question like, so what do you think we can do? This person is worried about this. How do we resolve that? How can we make that work for this person? Or how can we make that work for this company so that they can settle this? And then, you know, I, I had this one attorney that came up with this brilliant idea. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's a great idea. And I went back to the other side and I said, you know, the biggest concern you had was A, and I can't say what it is, but it was A, and, and this is what he came up with. I thought it was brilliant. They go, yeah, that does solve it. Yeah, so, you exactly. know, if you just ask the disputants themselves, um, if they if you can teach them to not be to get out of the blame and just say, OK, put the blame over there. What can you do to make this better? It, it really gets the juices going for them to to make that difference. Right. And on the first pass, the solution is going to be something that comes out of the hide of the other party. And then you say to them, yeah, I understand it'll work for you. But what do you think will work for him? Here's what he said that I heard, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they go. Oh, well, maybe we could, and there comes that creative thing that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's really fun to watch, but when I teach... And then they think that we're brilliant, and it's really their idea. <laughs> right. Well, you're brilliant in running a process to help them right. step up to that in a way that's productive. When I teach mediation skills, I teach people, you are tabula rasa. When you come as a mediator, you don't know anything. And so when your mind goes, oh, he needs to do X, I said, just don't listen to it. Yeah. Because yeah. that's yours. That's not theirs. It's their dispute. It's not your dispute. Exactly. And how we might resolve it is different. And who are we to say what's in their minds, you know? Right. And that's about the boundary issue that you mentioned, Mari. Yeah. The mediator's got to be real clear about his or her boundaries, you know. But when you can go home and say, well, I thought that she was going to do X, but he said Y, and they solved it so cool. And said, well, the dummies, I had a better solution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And sometimes we think we see things, but, but even if it... it 
it, we do think it would be better, it's still got to come from them because otherwise there's no commitment. That's so, right. And it's their dispute. It's not ours. Yeah. And it's their lives. I know. And it, it is. Is We kind of get out of our head like when you were saying that you're really intuitive. You were telling me before we started you're really intuitive. And that's what we have to do. We have to trust our intuition that we let go and we just let them get creative. And then they feel so much better about the solutions because... You know, I mean, we can help them at times, but it has to come from them. Exactly. And I say to people, don't ever give the parties a suggestion unless you to solve it, unless you give a minimum of three. Yeah. That that helps keep you unstuck. If they if they're really stuck, say, well, how about this? How about this? How about this? And they'll come up with number six that will work. Yes, exactly. One of the things I find interesting is I often when I do these interviews, sometimes I'll go on for 12 hours and. Once did work with my team from the Collaboration Institute where we went around the clock uh, with custodians. And people say, well, don't you get tired listening to those people? It's so exhausting. It's like, no, it's really fun. They're the ones that are exhausted, not me. Yeah, until you come home and then you drop. But I mean, at the time you've got all that energy. Then you come home, you go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I was so tired because you had this energy. But I want to tell people to go because we're just, believe it or not, out of time. But I want people to go to collaborationinstitute.com and there they can see all the great work you're doing. And then they can also look at interpersonal conflict and see if they can get some help from you in that way, even if they're not in Montana or, or even have you fly around and help Help them out, right? Sure. <laughs> and we do have a lot of specific, actionable things in the book that might be helpful to people. Exactly. So we will tell them to get Interpersonal Conflict by William Wilmot. And thank you, Bill, so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And I hope we get to meet real soon. Well, thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. And please visit our website at conflicthealing.com and write us emails and your concerns about conflict in your own life or your own business. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.